Last week, we talked about uh, God as our defender. That was kind of the overall theme there. And we, we kind of opened up by talking about the story in Exodus chapter 17, where Moses is leading the Israelites into a battle with the Amalekites. They defeat the Amalekites, and they, they basically make a monument to God at that point, and they name it Jehovah Nisi. Jehovah Nisi. Now, if you study that in the Hebrew, okay, Jehovah, of course, is God. That's the first part. The second part, Nisi, is, our, is basically a banner flag or a covering of victory, which represents God as our defender, our protector, our deliverer, okay? And so when you look at the names of God, Jehovah, there's seven names in the Old Testament, not going to go through all those, but Jehovah Nisi is one of those. And when God reveals himself to us as Jehovah Nisi, he's saying, look, this thing about defender, protector, deliverer, this is one of my attributes. This is one of the parts of my uh, manifold parts of my personality that as you know me and you walk with me, this is who I am to you. And so God wants to be our defender. He wants to be the one who goes before us and fights our battles for us. We are engaged. We play a role. But it's important to note that God is actually the one who delivers us and defends us against our enemies. And this is huge because it takes a lot of the weightiness off of us of all the things that are necessary in fighting a battle and, and going to battle against enemies. When we know there's a part we play, but there's a part that God plays that we're not supposed to, and we get a faith in that, it kind of just puts us in a place of peace when we're going through those battles, knowing that there's a part we really can't do, but God is doing for us, and He's going to see us through that. So that's a huge part of... In terms of walking in our callings and being who we're supposed to be, we talk a lot about we want to raise people up to walk in their callings here. That's a vision of our church, of what we're out to do. Well, as we're walking in our calling, we have to understand that, that enemies opposing us and coming against us is a part of what we're going to face. We'd love to believe that it's all pretty nice and easy and there's never going to be any resistance, but how many know that's not the case, right? Jesus said in John chapter 15, he said, is the servant greater than the master? They've persecuted me, so they will also persecute, persecute you for my sake. So as we're living for God, we have to understand that there is going to be an opposition. There are going to be enemies that rise up against us. As we advance in our calling in purpose, that forms an interference with what the enemy's trying to do to advance through the sons of perdition and keeping the plans of God from coming to pass. So there's always that opposition that's occurring, but it's okay if we understand how to handle our enemies and how to do battle and what that means as we go through it. And that's really the heart of what the message has been about last week, and then we're going to go into that even more so this week, is about how we're walking in our callings, enemies are going to come, but there's a, there's a, a peace and a rest and a confidence that we ought to go forward in through each and every battle and know that we are always going to come through on top because God is the one who's defending us through each and every one of those things. Makes amen? So that's just like a little bit of a recap and a summary. And we saw how last week Daniel was a classic example of this. There were a lot of things that rose up against Daniel. We went in chapter 6, which is the classic story of Daniel in the lion's den. And we talked about how as Daniel is being who he's called to be. The Bible said he was a man of an excellent spirit. So he certainly loved God. He was a man of prayer. He was 
was a man of purpose. We know this. And as he was doing these things, there were conspirators that started to form against him. And they tried to get Daniel tossed into the lion's den, get him killed and taken out. And we won't, you know, I'm not going to go through the whole message of last week, but obviously Daniel was delivered. He never freaked out. He never panicked. He went down in the lion's den and he came right out and he was unharmed. And the enemies, the conspirators that tried to get Daniel killed and tossed in there, ended up they themselves and their families, their children and everyone getting thrown down into the den and devoured. So that the plan, the plot actually came back down on top of the enemies, the, the conspirators' heads. And then Daniel ended up getting exalted and promoted through that. So it's a perfect example of how God is our defender if we trust and know that through the battle and how he actually can deliver us and exalt us to a place that we could never actually get ourselves to if we tried to fight that battle on our own. So we're going to look at another story today. Let me ask you this, though. Have you, can you relate to this? Have you ever been hated on? I mean, there's a lot of haters out there, right? I mean, sometimes people are they're coming against us. Stop looking at your neighbor right now. That's not a good time to do that. But there's things that come against us and enemies come in all shapes and sizes and, and different things and ultimately the bottom line is it's, it's, it's an attack or an attempt to thwart the plans and the purposes of God happening and being fulfilled through our lives as we're walking in faithfulness to Him. Enemies will rise up and try to stifle that, try to derail that. It'll happen by us being slandered through gossip being spread. Many times our intentions are misunderstood and so there's the, a whole thing of being you know, misunderstood Understandings, misrepresentation. There's a lot of different ways that this can look. It's not always just a physical battle kind of thing, right? It can be an emotional type of battle. And I know whenever Katie and I first got married and first started really walking with God, and, you know, I was just, I wanted to, to, to pursue what God wanted me to pursue. We wanted to be who He was calling us to be. And as we walked in that and we began to go down that path in that direction, it, it was just ultimately what happened was there were a lot of things and relationships of our past that were a part of the, the old us, you know, that weren't really good, uh, the way we were living, that as we walked in God's ways, we started to see a lot of these oppositions coming against us. And, and accusations would come against us and things that were really hard to hear and be like, no, you don't, that's not at all. People would say things like, you know, you just think you're so much better than everybody now. And I'm like, what in the world? Like, I don't, that is not at all what I think, you know, but it would just, and no, no matter how hard we tried to like fix that, to try to like, no, listen, let's have a conversation. I want you to understand it, it didn't, it didn't matter. It was like, it would still continue to, to brew and these misunderstandings and accusations kept coming and then we just realized that look we have to put this this battle in God's hands we have to let him be the defender of our reputation of our lives we have to know that he is ahead of us already he's out in front of us and he knows what's going on and we need to stop trying to get do all the battling on our own because all it was really doing was distracting us from our mission and our purpose and getting caught up in the side stuff and not really focused on what was ahead in front of us that God had and we realized that and we began to put our faith in God and I just got, I mean, I can't even tell you now years later looking back all the things that we never really saw that God was doing behind the scenes. He silences our oppressors. He calms the storms. He opens up and parts the path and makes a way where there seems to be no way. He's always faithful to do that and we saw it firsthand. But I have to tell you and I just want to make this clear because I think we can all appreciate this. The pain is real when you're going 
going through it. The pain is real and it hurts and it's not easy to take, but it's a part of what we have to understand. God has equipped us and prepared us to be able to deal with and that he is positioned, ready and desires to fight that battle for us. Amen. So we're going to look at a story today uh, about two guys. One guy named Mordecai and a guy named Haman. Two people and an enemy and a person that's trying to live for God and how this plan unfolds. How many people know what book that's in? Mordecai and Haman. What book is that in? Esther. Right. Esther. Good. Pop quiz and you got it right. All right. Uh, it's always a pressure moment. You're like, do I say it? And I'm, you know, um, in the book of Esther. So I'm just going to give you a little history and kind of a little summary. And then we're going to enter into the story here in a second in chapter three. But so here's what's going on. Basically, just a little bit of history. And I always love to kind of like study this stuff. So this will give some context to it. Hopefully you appreciate history parts of this too. But, you know, Israel as a nation was moving along through all the books of kings and chronicles. And they had all these kings that reigned after uh, Solomon and, and David and Solomon and, and they kind of ebbed and flowed in the way they were obedient to God and they fell away and eventually at one point, finally at some point in about 700 something BC God finally said listen you've, I've had enough, you've just continued to walk in disobedience to me, you've turned your face away from me and so God essentially just lifted his hand and he allowed Israel to be conquered and the Assyrians started that in the northern tribes of Israel and then later we have what's called the Babylonian captivity which the nation of Babylon wipes out Israel, conquers Jerusalem, destroys the temple, and then Israel and all the Jews, picture this, like all of the Jews are now transported over to the, to the area of Babylon, and they're now in captivity for what ended up lasting for 70 years. So while they're in captivity in Babylon, that's when the story of Daniel takes place. Now actually, while Babylon is reigning over, over Israel and they're all in captivity, along comes a nation called called Persia, and Persia actually conquers Babylon. And so when they conquer Babylon, they're basically now reigning over the nation of Israel and all the Jews by default. And then eventually what went on to happen, and right in this time where Persia's reigning is where our story is going to unfold, but ultimately after that, Alexander the Great, you've heard of him, he ends up conquering Persia. He's a part of a Greece province, Greek province, and then along comes Rome. They conquer Greece and take over, and then that sets the stage for the coming of the Messiah, which is Jesus. And then obviously uh, we see Israel become a nation many years later again, but that's kind of how the story unfolds. So we are in the time of captivity and we see here in the book of Esther that uh, there is a king who is reigning and his name is it's hard to even pronounce in, in the way that it's, uh, I'm going to give you his Greek name in a second, but the king's name was Ahaxerus. It's a weird name. It's hard to say, but the Greek way of saying that is Xerxes. Now, who's heard of the famous King Xerxes, right? You've seen the movie 300. Xerxes, the Persian king, that's kind of what that story is mimicked off of, but he was a real person that really reigned during this time in like 500 something BC, roughly, uh, and he was over the nation of Persia that's obviously got the Jews in captivity. And so he's got this queen whose name is Vashti and he likes to have all of his women come and all the, you know, they all come and they kind of like, they, they, they're at his beck and call and uh, man, nice were the days, right? No, just kidding. Just kidding. Yeah. So, uh, the, whew. is it hot in here? <laughs> 
So he's got this queen Vashti and she refuses to come when the king tells her to come. And uh, so he did what any good king would do. He just basically threw her out, right? And he decided he was going to get a new king. So he, and then he, and he writes this decree, has this law made that says, you know, like anytime a, a man says something, a man should be able to rule his house and his, his bride or whatever has to obey whatever he says. And so anyway, times were good back then. Everybody really appreciated what was going on. And Vashti, she, uh, she gives him some lip, which is not good. And so she refuses to do what he says. So she's tossed out. And, uh, and so then what happens is the king decides he wants to get a new queen. And so they start bringing the, the different women and their virgins. And they started bringing them forward to basically see what fancied the king's liking. Okay, And one of those women was a, late, was a young lady named Esther. Esther, which is obviously the name of our story, the book here, Esther. And so Esther is, uh, she is a Jew, and she was raised by her cousin, which is named Mordecai. So Mordecai stepped in because Esther's parents weren't around. She was basically an orphan, and he fulfilled the role of raising her and watching over her. So we know, how many know that is a righteous thing, right? I mean, he stepped in and, and did a great thing. And we know that Mordecai was a noble man who loved God. And so Esther is one of the the women that goes in front of King Xerxes and he's seeing all these women come forth and he chooses Esther. She is the one that found favor with the king. And I love this one part. It says that as she went forward, she didn't take anything with her except what her, I guess, maidservant or whatever you call that gave her. So I'm not exactly sure all the details of that. It doesn't really say, but I get a picture of like, she didn't put all this excessive stuff on her to try to beautify herself. She didn't go overboard with all of the perfumes and jewels and all the excessive things that maybe a lot of them were doing. She was who she was and she was beautiful and the king saw something in her for that. And so she had favor, so he picks her. So Esther becomes queen. Mordecai is obviously, he's still in the story. And so what happens is one day, Mordecai, he's trying to kind of keep an eye on Esther and make sure she's okay. And he's at the gates and he's listening and he hears this plot unfold by some of King Xerxes' right-hand men and they're going to throw him out they want to lay hands on him basically assassinate him and so Mordecai delivers the news to Esther and then Esther takes it to Xerxes he finds out about it confirms that the plot is real and then they execute the conspirators and then once they get executed here's what happens there's a guy named Haman who's kind of like next in line in the ranks who then gets promoted into this place of influence alongside of King Xerxes Esther is queen Mordecai still keeping an eye out for Esther and that's where we're going to enter into the story because Haman was a terrible man and he was overcome with greed. He was overcome with pride and he was eventually going to become a conspirator against Mordecai and we're going to see how Mordecai and Esther trusted God as their defender and how this plot unfolds from there. All right, so open up to Esther chapter 3. Esther chapter 3, verse 1. And it says, after the king uh, Xerxes promoted Haman, the sons of Hamadatha the Agatite advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. And all of the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman. For so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. He wasn't going to bow to anyone except his God. And, and, and Haman was like, I want people to bow to me. So he's this egotistical maniac, right? 
So the king's servants uh, who were within the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? Now it happened when they spoke to him daily and he would not listen to them that they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. Well, when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes, the people of Mordecai. So just because Haman won't bow to anyone but his God, it enrages, I'm sorry, just because Mordecai wouldn't bow to anyone but his God, it enrages Haman, and he begins to develop this conspiracy and this plot now where he's not just going to take out Mordecai, he's going to take out all of the Jews. Now there's an important point in this that we can really take out, is that when our enemies begin to get consumed with wrath, because that's a part of what happens, we need to allow them to be consumed in their wrath, but not take up wrath ourselves against them. Does that make sense? The Bible says in a lot of places, it says it in Proverbs, it says, he who is slow to wrath has great understanding. The Bible says in Proverbs 15, a wrathful man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger allays contention. And then James 1, 19 says, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. So we need to make sure that whenever enemies are rising up against us, there is a temptation not to, I'm not, we fight back in our own way, but there's a temptation to become filled with wrath against that. And when we get filled with wrath, how many know that we become predisposed to sin? We become predisposed to tripping up. And that's what we're seeing here is that Mordecai is not going to do. Haman gets filled with wrath. He gets enraged with wrath and it escalates really fast. He goes from hating Mordecai to hating every one of the Jews and he wants to kill him. And so now what we'll eventually see is that this whole plot that's driven by his wrath, by his pride, by his ego, ultimately end up being his demise and what he does. So, slow to wrath. Now, we see in uh, verses 8 through 11, let's jump there. So then Haman said to King Xerxes, there are certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all other peoples, and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand. If you were here last week, this is sound familiar? And gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agatite, and the enemy of the Jews. The king said to Haman, the money and the people are given to you. Do with them as seems good to you. And then the king's scribes were called on the 13th day, remember that, of the first month, and a decree was written according to all that Haman commanded to the king's satraps, that the governors who were over each province, that the officials of all the people, that every province and every people in their language, and the king of Xerxes, it was written and sealed with the king's sign at ring. So Haman goes and he forms a conspiracy. He tricks Xerxes basically because he strokes his ego. He's like, hey man, there's some people, they're not obeying your laws. What were those laws? They wouldn't bow. 
allow to Haman, right? He forgets he didn't bring in all that, but he just said, they're not obeying you. We need to take them out. We need to kill them. Give me permission. And so the king, filled probably with a little bit of pride himself, goes ahead and, and says, yes, let's make that a decree. He seals that thing with his signet ring, which was like the ultimate level of authority. Here's the thing that you got to keep in mind, which we see unfold, which we saw last week, is that no authority under heaven outranks the authority of God. That God the defender is always going to have the ultimate authority. When you see this decree sealed by Xerxes with his ring, you would think in the natural, it's over. This is the end of the Jews. They're done for. It's been signed. It's been sealed. Xerxes said it. It's going to be, it's, it's going to be fulfilled. But, but Mordecai and Esther don't give in. They don't give up. They don't lose faith. And they remember who the God that they serve is. Who the God with the ultimate authority in heaven that outranks all the authority on earth is that's going to be fighting this battle for them. Are you with me so far? Say, I'm with you. So next what we see happen is Mordecai learns of this and it says that he begins to lament and he goes and he tears his clothes and he goes into a time of prayer. Now in this time when, when Jews would tear their clothes, they weren't going streaking in the streets, okay? It wasn't like old school. If you've seen that movie, probably don't want to promote that from here. But anyway, uh, so they weren't going streaking. What he was doing, he was tearing his clothes, which showed a great sign of uh, lamenting and something that was hurting the heart of God is now hurting the heart of Mordecai. And so I would say when we see evil oppressing the plans of God in our world, what does it do? Does it, does it cause us pain to the point where it's almost like a lamenting, which it ought to. If the heart of God is our heart, then there ought to be a lamentation about the things that are happening that are evil in the world. And there is something that we can do about that. We're not just sitting back on the sidelines and uncaring capable of doing something, immediately what we see Mordecai do is he goes into prayer and he goes into fasting. And there ought to be a deep conviction in our heart to pray fervently before our Heavenly Father anytime we see evil oppressing anything in the world that's good. And that's exactly what we see Mordecai do. He, he laments and he, he tears his clothes and he goes into a time of prayer. And then what he does is he basically says to Esther, you're going to have to let King Xerxes know. You're going to have to tell him what's going on. Now, there's this whole thing at this time that doesn't probably make a whole lot of sense right now, but if, the, if Queen Esther goes before Xerxes before appointed times and before certain seasons where she's allowed to go before him, that she could actually be killed for that. She could be executed for not going, like operating within the rules of the king. Well, she decides that she's going to make a stand. And it says that she even reasoned or resolved in herself. If I die, I die. I'm going before the king and I'm going to let this plot be known. And I would just say to all of us that there comes a point in time when there are enemies oppressing us, when we do have to operate out of a deep sense of conviction and we have to make a stand even in the face of danger in the natural and no, 
know that God will still deliver us and see us through. Just like Daniel went down into that lion's den and just like Esther says, I'm going to go before the king. I might live or die this day. I don't know, but it doesn't matter because I am not going to operate by the, in, by the corrupt laws that are happening here. I am going to operate by the, the, by the ultimate authority of God and what he's called our nation to be. And she goes before the king and she reveals the plot and it gets really, really good from here. So what we see is that Esther, uh, she goes before him, and, and first what she does is she requests this banquet. That's what she did first before she revealed the plot. She wants to have this banquet, and she wants to have a dinner with Haman and with Xerxes. And so she's going to bring everything out in the open. Very wise, isn't it? Like the way that she's going to do this. She wants to have her dinner with Xerxes and with Haman. She knows that that's probably going to be received well. And then Haman, it says in here that Haman, he was basically like beaming with pride. He was telling all of his family, he's like, the queen wants me to have a dinner with Xerxes and her. And he's all puffed up, right? You got this picture of this guy. He's like, yeah, man. He's like, his ego couldn't be any higher than what it is. He's about ready to blow up with pride. And it's interesting because the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So right, I mean, isn't this, I love it when you see these things happening and you know they're true because they're in the Bible, but then you see it happen. He's as puffed up as you can be and it's right before he's getting ready to fall just like Proverbs says in chapter 16. I love that part. So anyway, what ends up happening here um, is that in chapter 6, we see something supernatural happen. And this is important because we recognize that when we're engaged in the battle, Esther's doing what she can, you know, Mordecai's doing what he can. They're praying, they're seeking God, they're, they're using wisdom. But there is a part of the battle that only Jehovah Nisi, God our defender, can actually carry out for us. And this is the part, because they're in faith, because they're trusting him, that when the time comes where that's God's divine timing of when he's going to move, because they're in faith and trusting that, that's when we see the supernatural move of God occur, and he goes in front of them and begins to fight the battle. Now, how many know, I love the verse, it's uh, Deuteronomy chapter th 1, verse 30. It says, the Lord, your God, who goes before you, he will fight for you. I mean, it couldn't be more clear than that, right? He goes before you. What does that mean? That means you're never out in front of God. He's always out in front of you. Now, we can take up control on our own, try to do things in our own strength, take things on ourselves, and then we could get ourselves ahead of God, and that is not a place that we want to be. We don't want to be out in front of God with Him behind us and us staring our enemies in the face. We want to have God out in front of us and us behind God, who is our defender, and seeing our enemies basically bow their knee to His authority. Right? And that's what, that's what happens here. So in chapter 6... Verse 1, let's start with this. That night, the king could not sleep. Xerxes. He couldn't sleep. Interesting. So one was commanded to bring the book of records of the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers, who had sought to lay hands on King Xerxes. And then the king said, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended him said, 
said, nothing has been done for him. So the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to suggest that the king hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. So I'm going to just pause right there. I'm going to break the rest of this down. This is great. So Haman, he's filled with wrath. He hates Mordecai. He hates Esther. He hates the Jews. He's filled with pride. We obviously see all that. He goes and he builds these gallows, which are these giant beams and things where they're going to hang people from. His whole plot and plan, which is it's on his like property in his area. I mean, it's just, can you get any worse than it? And he wants to hang Mordecai right there in front of all his friends and family. Like he wants to just, I'm going to serve my pride, man. I'm going to kill this guy. I'm going to hang him on my own gallows that I've made. And I'm going to execute him in my own place before all my friends and family. And my, my influence is going to be preserved, right? That's how he goes at this. So King Xerxes is sleeping, or he can't sleep. Interesting. God moves supernaturally. He says when he can't sleep, have somebody bring me the book of records. I just want to go through and read some history tonight. I can't sleep. Maybe it'll put me to sleep. So he goes through and he finds out about, remember in the early part of chapter one, where the, or two, where the plot was uh, unveiled by Mordecai to Xerxes, where his right-hand men were going to execute him. And he, and he saved Xerxes and he ended up promoting Haman to the next role. But, but Xerxes says, I've never really thought about it, but nobody got rewarded for revealing that plot. Who was it? Oh, that was Mordecai. What was done for Mordecai to honor him for what he did for the king? Well, nothing was done, actually. We just moved right on. He's like, well, we're going to do something about that. And so the rest of chapter 6, you see how God moves supernaturally? He kept Xerxes awake. He kept him stirring. He brought the book of records. He revealed this to him at the exact right time, at the exact right time, even though something wasn't done for him earlier, something getting done for him right now is a whole lot better timing in God's hand than it would have been if Mordecai would have tried to force that himself, side point. Anyway, so he brings it in. He says, what has been done? He said, nothing's been done. He said, we're going to change that. So he says, we're going we're gonna to put a robe on him. We're going to put apparel on him. We're going to recognize him. We're going to carry him around on a horse and people are going to shout, you know, chants and things to him and do all this stuff. And we're going to honor Mordecai. So he says, who's in the street that can help me carry this out right now at this hour? And they said, well, Haman's out there, actually. Oh, good. Get Haman in here. So Haman, boom, 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 boom. Yeah, he's walking in. Here we go again. Just another piece of recognition for me, 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 Haman, right? So he comes in and he's like, yes, king. And the king says, what should we do for a man who the king wants to honor and wants to recognize? What, what do you think, Haman, we ought to do? And what do you think Haman's thinking? Ooh, he's talking about me. Yeah, yeah. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to do all this fancy stuff and we're going to do it. And Xerxes is like, that's a great idea. Haman, I want you to go out right now and find Mordecai and do all of that for him. Oh, Haman is like, what? Can you just picture that? I mean, certain places where you just love to be a fly on the wall. I would love to see the look on Haman's face. You ever see those like old Looney Tunes cartoons when like Yosemite Sam gets like all red and blows his head off or whatever? I would picture that. Like Haman's there right now. And so he's like, okay. So he goes out and he's like, I'm going to do all of this stuff for Mordecai that I thought I was going to do. And he is furious. He is so enraged at this point. He's overcome with wrath. There's no reasoning. There's no wisdom. There's no understanding or not. I mean, he is operating on pure influence of the devil. He is under wrath and he don't even have a clue as to what's going to happen here. And so he moves in, does all this stuff. And then we see that... Uh, 
the plot right after all this. So, so Esther has the dinner and she reveals the plot to Xerxes. And let's go to chapter 7, verse 7. So Xerxes finds out about this. Oh my gosh, Haman's throat's got to just be, oh my gosh. So verse 7, Then the king arose in his wrath from the banquet of wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stood before Queen Esther, pleading for his life, for he saw that evil was determined against him by the king. Not so tough now, big guy, are you? When the king returned from the palace garden to the place of the banquet of wine, Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was. Like he's just, I mean, he's just pleading for his life, right? He's, he's totally just, now he's humiliating himself here. He's fallen across the couch pleading for his life, for he saw that evil was determined against him. And, uh, and the king said, will he also assault the queen while I am in the house? <laughs> As the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Remember those like black things? They throw a thing over his face. They, they tie him up, right? And now Harbana, one of the eunuchs, said to the king, look, the gallows are 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on the king's behalf and is standing at the house of Haman. And then the king said to him, hang him on it. And so they hung Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And then the king's wrath subsided. <sighs> I mean, do you remember the term, the very profound wisdom phrase that I used last week? Sometimes when we conspire, we end up slipping in our own crap, right? You remember that? Said it again. Sorry. Anyway, that's exactly what just happens. So Haman, the king sees these gallows that he just built to hang Mordecai on. And he says, go and hang Haman on those gallows. And so they go and they execute Haman and they hang him on the very gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Now, I want you to listen to this. In Psalm 71, chapter, 20, or chapter 71, verse 24, in the New Living Translation. I will tell about your righteous deeds all day long. For everyone who tried to hurt me has been shamed and humiliated. Do you see, guys, that the purpose of God is that though our enemies plot against us, they are never going to destroy us. That everything our enemies conspire to do, to take us out, to thwart the plans of God, it can't prevail. If God is in front as our defender fighting our battles, they'll never be successful long term in their attempts to defame and to take out the people, the children of God who are walking in faithfulness and obedience to the plan and the calling of God that's on their life, if they'll remain in that place of faith and trust all the time that he is really our defender. There's many times when we can't see the details of how it's going to work out or how it's going to happen. We have to release ourselves from the need to know all of the details about the battle plans and we need to attach ourselves to the faith and the confidence that we always know God is our defender and he will work it out better and more timely than we could ever do on our own. Can you say amen to that? Amen. So then, right after Haman is hung, Mordecai is promoted over the house of Haman. He is now in charge of everything that Haman was in charge of. 
So Mordecai is exalted. What does the Bible say? It says that he who humbles himself shall be exalted. He who exalts himself shall be humbled. Mordecai was in humility. He was faithful to God. He is now exalted. He is promoted. He's at a place of influence that he could have never got to on his own. That only by walking with God and trusting God did that opportunity open up and unveil itself to him. And he stepped right in and God promoted him. And then it says in, later in chapter 8, Xerxes issued a new decree, a new decree. And guess what this decree said? It was, I kind of call this the great reversal. Because the decree that had been made and sealed by the king to kill all of the Jews, basically, because of the plot of Haman, is now reversed and the new decree goes out on the exact same day of the exact same month that the old plot was supposed to happen and hadn't yet. God was just setting it up perfectly. And now the decree is reversed and it says that anyone who opposes Israel and the, and the people who serve this God, they shall be, that Israel will have a place to destroy them, to annihilate them, to take them out and to remove them as a threat and as opposition to them in all of the land. And the decree is sealed, but not because Xerxes sealed it, because God had already sealed it many time before, much time before this plot even started to unfold. Amen. And so they go out, and this is great. Listen to this in uh, chapter 8, verse 15. It says, So Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white with a great crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. The Jews had light and gladness, joy and honor. And in every province and city where the king's command and decree had came, the Jews had joy and gladness and a feast and a holiday. And then many of the people of the land became Jews because fear of the Jews fell upon them. So God, ultimately, the final place of this, the final level of this, is that it really ultimately wasn't about making Mordecai famous at all. Even though that happened, he was influenced, or given influence, he was promoted. God protected him, he defended him. Like Mordecai was a part of God's plan and it just all worked out great for Mordecai because God is so great and when we serve him, we walk in blessing and favor. But really the whole point of all this is that God himself was made famous. That God was glorified. All could see that the God that Israel served had moved and had defended the nation, not just a person, and preserved them and kept them from being conquered. So much so that they actually instituted a feast. And this was one of two feasts that were instituted outside of the Mosaic Covenant. And it was called the Feast of Purim. And it's still celebrated this day. Still celebrated this day. And it's a feast that celebrates that God defends his people from their enemies. Is that amazing or what? So ultimately, guys, God was glorified. And he was made famous through all this. And so so let me just close by saying this. I, it's not that I do this perfectly at all, please. I'm probably a poor example of this in a lot of ways. But I, I'm at a point, I've just been kind of wrecked in my heart. And I'm at a place with God where I don't really want to do anything with my life that doesn't bring God glory. I mean, I, we exist to bring glory to the one who created us. And I understand the way that I husband my wife. Is that a way to say that? 
and the way she obeys me, right? Yeah. <laughs> The, uh, the, the husband that I am, how I father my children, how I pastor this church, all of these things really ultimately are an opportunity to bring God glory. That's what they are. And you know what else is very interesting? Is that even our enemies rising against us, ultimately, God can use that through our lives if we'll trust Him to bring Him glory in the process. And I'll just say, if me walking in the plan of God for my life and the purpose that He has for me, if it takes me into places where in the natural there is harm that could be done, if there are enemies that might raise their heads against me through that battle, through that walk, but it will ultimately bring God glory through my life if I walk through it properly, I will submit to that. I will say, if enemies want to raise their head, but God can use me if I stay faithful to Him, and His name can be made famous way above mine, then I'll accept that as part of the call on my life, Father. And I will submit to say that anyone who comes against any of, any of the enemies that would raise their heads against us, just like how David said against Shimei, the Lord can use him in this, who is an enemy to David. We can look at the things that are happening, the pain is real, but we can understand and trust God, that God, you can use this situation, this enemies raise up against us and you can use this not only to promote and bring us through and bring us to a higher position of influence in our lives but ultimately God it'll bring you glory and that is my primary reason for existence amen stand to your feet with me today What, what are some enemies that have come against you in your life in the past? Surely we have, all have them. What was the outcome of that? You know, did we trust God? Did we really lean on Him? Did we understand this idea of Him as our defender? The past is the past, but just what was the outcome of that? Possibly are there enemies rising up against you now? I'm sure there are some here that would say that's a very real thing in my life right now. But recognize that the calling of your life from God is so big and is so large that you're going to disrupt the forces of hell as you move forward in that. You're going you're gonna to threaten hell with the calling of God on your life. And that is going to bring resistance. That is going to bring opposition. That's the, that's the issue. The solution is God is our defender. He's given that to us. He has revealed himself to us in that way. And anything that he reveals to us, that he gives to us, we have, by through grace, by faith. If we believe it and we trust in it, it's ours. And the power of that happening and flowing to our lives by grace is continuing to be operable in our lives each and every day that we walk in that faith. Daniel was a man who was of an excellent spirit. And just like Mordecai, he was a man who, as we saw in Psalm 91, knew how to be and put himself in the secret place with God often. And the secret place, as you read that in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, it, it actually means like a place of habitation. Habitation. You see this place with God that, we want to, that He wants us to be in with Him? Guys, it's, it's a place of habitation. It's a dwelling. It's a walking in a place of abiding with God in His presence each and every day. And as we're in that place, 
often and regularly, all of the attributes of God and all of the promises of God are very real to us in our lives because we know Him so well. And everything that He has given to us is a part of what we have and we know Him so closely that we see that happening in our lives. And as we get into that secret place often and regularly where the, the presence of God, the awareness of His presence and His favor over us is there, we are not strangers to that. The people of God ought not to be strangers to the secret place, to the presence of God covering and, and, and walking and, and shadowing over their lives each and every day. And if we'll stay in that place with God, just like Jesus said, abide in the vine. It's not hard to bear fruit when you abide in the vine. You just do. Right? And so the, the thing is abiding, not bearing. It's as I abide, it, I'll bear. As I stay in the secret place, God is my defender, my healer, my provider, my protector. All of the things that He's promised me in His Word are just very real to me. It's a very much a part of what I have in Him. And I just know that there's just a faith that keeps that flowing in my life. Amen.